is my pleasure to introduce to you the first lecture of this summer school. And that slot or that position is given to Ron Christie, who is a uh, Ronald, perhaps, I should say, <laughs> <laughs> who seems to be an American expatriate living in, uh, in uh, England right now. However, he has a long uh, past, as you perhaps understood, in Sweden. So there are these uh, small universities that we call countryside universities in Sweden. Okay? Um, actually, I now notice one more person you can see. Oh, there he is! <laughs> and they, uh, uh, what was I going to say? And they like to start up by getting good people there to help them to start, get going. And Ron was such a person. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's yes. <laughs> you don't have to post yourself, I'll do it to you. <laughs> so you, they put you there, and they, uh, he helped them to get started. And uh, as far as I know, crypto is now going very well. They're still, they call themselves university in English, but I don't think they're allowed to call themselves university yet in Swedish, but I'm not sure. This is a title that you acquire in Sweden by applying to the Ministry of so anyway, Ron has a long past in Sweden, and uh, what did you say, 12 years? Or 18. 18 years! Well, I mean, wow. the first time I came here was, yeah, well, in Sweden was, I think, 1987. 1987? Mm -hmm. Then I am a little surprised that you don't speak better Swedish. <laughs> 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 okay, you can't do everything here in life. <laughs> Anyway, and Ron has also been here before, as you understood. So once we had this strange conference where we talked about creating the world using AI. And Ron gave a talk on that subject. Anyway, that's not his uh, topic today. But instead, another field where he has for a long time been active is the field of, um, let's say, thinking without concepts. Uh, and last year I was also trying to push that line and say maybe we don't need concepts really. And you and I should talk a little more about that. We have, a, we have an enemy here in uh, Joel oh. <laughs> who thinks that, that concepts are absolutely essential. But it might be that you and I wouldn't agree when we talk more, but uh, on the surface it can look like we agree right <laughs> Anyway, the title that uh, Ron is having today is Concepts and Proto-Concepts in Cognitive Science. The floor is yours. Well, just since you mentioned it, remind, if I don't get to that issue about conceptual optimism uh, at the end, remind me to okay. during the question time. I'm going to try to leave time no, for questions. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> um, maybe you could help me by telling me um, when I should stop. Uh, sure. And we have a schedule somewhere. So I make it. Um, uh, I'll, I'll try to tell you ten minutes before, so that you need some time for questions. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. So uh, the time now is. Uh, None of these have the right time. Um, when did we get? Oh, there we go. Okay, so it's it's nine thirty-eight. So I should end by um, ten thirty. So you basically, you have sixty minutes. Okay, so I can. Fifteen minutes for talk, and let's say ten minutes. Okay, good. So I can go to about 10.28 then, or something like that. Yeah. Okay, if you want to interpret it that way, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, okay. 
just the, the only thing I want to mention about this slide is that there's a new Center for Consciousness Science that's been created at Sussex this year. And uh, although the main, uh, one of the main people behind that is NL Seth, my colleague in informatics at Sussex, and a few other people, um, such as Hugo Critchley in neuroscience. Um, although they're the main people behind it, uh, I'm one of the eight faculty members associated with the center, and so um, I think it's a sign that there's some interesting things happening at Sussex in uh, the science of consciousness. So if you don't remember anything about my talk, or um, that, that's fine, but you might remember and mention to your colleagues that, um, so what, what happened at the summer school? Oh, we heard about the Center for Consciousness Science in Sussex. So um, that's something you can, there's something you can take home with you already, some news. So uh, Orsa asked about maybe uh, the different cognitive science courses that are available in Sweden. Well, also, you might talk, we don't have any funding for you, but if, if anybody wants to spend time in at Sussex uh, doing some cognitive science or consciousness science, then you could always talk to me about seeing whether there's a possibility for that, um, that kind of collaboration. Okay, so let me give an overview, three slides of overview of what I'm going to talk about. Um, this is part one of two parts. Uh, the next part, I believe, is on Wednesday. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, this will be the overview of both parts, because they're both just uh, one long lecture, I guess, um, but broken at a natural point. But this, these overviews will cover both halves. So I'm going to focus on uh, the notion, the concept of concept, the notion of concept. And in my opinion, it's the workhorse of orthodox cognitive science. It's really the notion that does a lot of the work maybe sometimes behind the scenes, but um, uh, it's doing a lot of explanatory work in cognitive science. Um, so I'm focusing on that and looking at its role in cognitive science. And um, in my, I think it's rather standard view, uh, concepts are constituents of mental content. I'll explain with that what, what it means for something to be a constituent of mental content later. But just for now, concepts are constituents, constituents of mental content that meet some conditions. They are articulable, they are recombinable. This is a very, uh, about two second delay between me pressing the button and something coming up on the screen. Um, I don't think this is going to work. They are rational. I'll go over each of these conditions later. I'll just keep pressing the buttons until they come up. They are deployable. So this is the four extra conditions I'll explain that make a constituent of mental content, a conceptual constituent of mental content. And I think it's a, an upshot of these four conditions on concepts that concepts, content presents the world as being a particular way. And concepts present the world as being the objective world. All contents, in my opinion, present the objective world one way or the other. There's only the objective world. In my opinion, there's, there isn't any such thing as a subjective world. There's the objective world, but the objective world can be presented or thought of or experienced as being objective, or it could be experienced as being um, something less than objective. But because concepts meet these conditions, they present the world as the objective world. So this is a fault of Christmas? It's part of the objective world? No. That's a father concept? <clears throat> Nobody told you this, Jens? That no. Father Christmas isn't part of the objective world? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, 
sorry to be the one to break it to you, but uh, no, I, I, I'm not sure why this would be a puzzle. Um, I could be wrong well, about... People would say that Father Christmas is a concept. It's a concept, yeah. And you say a concept presents the objective worlds. If they present anything at all, they present the If, if, if a content is about anything at all, it has to be about something. You're basically bringing up Brentano. This is Brentano's worry. Uh, if you have an intentional relation to something, um, that thing has to exist. So how could you have an intentional relation to unicorns or Father Christmas? Um, well, you don't have an intentional relationship to unicorns or Father Christmas. So you must have an intentional relationship to something else if you have an intentional relationship at all when you're having thoughts that we normally express with the phrase Father Christmas and unicorns. So this is uh, um, a very recherche debate in philosophy, I think. I don't think it's much of much interest to cognitive scientists, but okay, so if I have a belief that, um, yeah, okay, that if I have a belief that Sherlock Holmes lives at 221 Baker Street, um, that obviously isn't, there is no person Sherlock Holmes bred to be about, but how you treat fictional uh, beliefs about fiction can be it's a very well-known problem to be handled in many ways. You can either say there is no referent there, um, there's nothing that's being related to, or you could say that there's uh, an abstract object that does exist that's being related to, but it's not uh, enough for it to be true that Sherlock Holmes lives at 221 Baker Street. I mean, I don't, I don't think these are But it would be an problems. objection to this concept present the objective world. If they present anything at all, that's, if they present anything a, at all, they can there be concepts that don't present anything at all? Yes, there can be, yeah. Okay. Like Father Christmas. Okay. But, they, doesn't, yeah. but they have concepts anyway. Well, that's right. Okay, so this is a... <laughs> Frege had this problem too. So Frege said, well, a, set, a content, he called it sense, is a mode of presentation. And they say, well, what about um, King of France? What about Father Christmas? What about... Um, singular terms that don't have any reference. What's being presented in that case? Well, Frege wanted to hold on to his idea of uh, <coughs> of uh, senses being a mode of presentation of a reference. So he invented a referent, and he called it. He basically, just he was a mathematician, so he just called it the empty set, and said that Father Christmas or the King of France um, uh, presents the empty set in a particular way. So. Um, if you want to, if it's important to you to think of concepts as always presenting something, uh, then you can do that by just introducing some artificial referent that is the null referent, that basically doesn't exist um, in any sense other than the formal sense. But it's the way that the null referent is presented that gives the character of the thought, Father Christmas is jolly, a very different uh, cognitive uh, have a different cognitive significance than the King of France is jolly, even though the reference are the same. Just like the morning star and the evening star, the reference are the same. Well, here the references are the same, the null referent, but nevertheless it's the way the null referent is presented. So there's machinery that you can use to overcome this problem if you, if you think it's a problem. I think for most cognitive scientists it really won't be a problem. Well, maybe it would make a person like me give up the idea that concepts should present the objective. When they present something, <laughs> Other than the, if, if you want to say other than the null reference, then the the only things that are available to present are things that exist. Well, um, if they, they don't exist, then they can't be presented. Hmm? Why do they have to present? 
Okay, well, no, well, I guess these are fundamental questions that yeah. need to be addressed. So content is the way that the world is presented to a subject. I'm taking it as um, a starting point that I don't really question that the world is presented to subjects, that, that the world seems like something to subjects. Um, so that right there, content comes in at the very beginning because um, the way that the world seems isn't necessarily the way the world is, notoriously. Um, and so you already have a notion of truth or falsity or correctness or incorrectness. So once something can seem to be some way, it's possible there's a seems is distinction, and it's possible for the thing, the world, not to be that way. That's enough to get content in the door. Once you have content on you know, in the door, on the table, whatever metaphor you want to mix, um, then uh, I'll show how concepts come from that because concepts are just constituents of content; they're patterns in content. So. Okay, let's paper over the vast cracks of the difference. So, in traditional cognitive science, it's often thought that these concepts, these constituents of mental content, are required for any intentional explanation of cognitive phenomena. You can have other explanations of things in the world, like physical explanations or say, brute neuroscientific explanations. But if you want your explanation to be an intentional one, one that involves aboutness or involves any hint of mentality, then it's going to have to be one that involves concepts. It is thought. It is often thought. I'm going to be questioning that assumption. All right, first overview slide. One, Okay. Uh, however, uh, I'm going to claim there seem to be, well, other people have already done, you know, argued this, there seem to be mental phenomena that are not adequately characterized in terms of concepts. Concepts have a hard time handling uh, these mental phenomena, and some of these mental phenomena include the fineness of grain of perceptual experience, the incorrigibility, that's just a fancy way of saying the uncorrectability, the incorrigibility of illusions, um, the non, um, there are non-circularity requirements on a theory of perception that seem to require something that is um, non, that, that it's a role that concepts can't fill, it seems. Um, it's going to be a very slow talk, so we have to wait five seconds every time I want to expert upon. The graded nature of development and evolution and learning as well, I should have put in there. Um, commonalities in perception. <laughs> commonalities in perception for those who do not share the same concepts. That concepts that requires some concepts cannot explain those commonalities in perception by hypothesis. Um, the context sensitivity and situatedness of some cognitive processes seem to demand uh, an explanation that concepts can't provide. And also the phenomenology of non-objectual thought. Now I won't get to all of these. I'll just hopefully just go quickly through the first five, I think, um, but um, six and seven are also there, and some other ones that I haven't mentioned. Okay, last overview slide. <clears throat> Maybe I'm going to have to give up on the remote and wonder if the keyboard will be faster. What's that? Oh, yeah, um, maybe so.
Um, so I'm going to propose that if you employ a notion of non-conceptual content, con con it's still content, the world is still being presented as being a particular way, but it's not being presented um, conceptually, it's not being presented as the objective world that meets those four conditions of articulability, recombinability, um, <clears throat> rationality, and deployability. Um, then you will have a notion that doesn't suffer from the limitations on the previous slide. And we can call these non-conceptual constituents of content proto-concepts. Uh, but there are, all, there are going to be challenges for this new notion, relatively new notion, of non-conceptual content. And I'll look at a few of them. Uh, that The ones I'll look at include the problem of specifying non-conceptual content. There's an advantage to conceptual content that it, in that it's easy to specify, um, but non-conceptual content doesn't have that um, ease of specification, so there's a challenge there. There's also uh, an obligation to explain how non-conceptual content relates to conceptual content if you keep conceptual content around, which some people want to do. And maybe also a problem of um, how your computational modeling of intentional su subjects has to change if you're going to acknowledge the existence of non-conceptual states. All right, so that's the overview of the two parts. Part one will just pretty much go up to um, the criticism, the problems for the conceptual approach, and then part two will be picking up, saying in more detail what the non-conceptual alternative is and the problems with it. Okay. So I've already gone over some of these uh, in my discussion, some of these points in my discussion with Jens, but just to go over it again. I think that what really sets cognitive science apart from other uh, explanatory uh, endeavors is um, an emphasis on intentional explanation. Not only using intentional states in its explanations, for example, propositional attitude explanations of behavior or using representations to explain um, behavior, for instance, but also attempts to explain the intentional states themselves in terms of the non-intentional. So intentionality is, I think, at the core of cognitive science and using intentionality in explanations and explaining intentionality. So I'm going to assume... Yes, can I say, yeah. I think it's good if you could say a word about the... Um, you know, the way philosophers use intentionality and the way a lot of other people use it. For example, in pragmatics and so on, where intentionality in philosophy is about this, right? That's right. Whereas in, in, in other circumstances, it's uh, the goal of your action, purpose. Right. Do you want to say something? Is there a connection between these two? How do you see those? Yeah, there's a connection. Uh, yeah, so Brian Smith, my mentor for a while called the last one, the second one, intentionality with a D um, is a joke because uh, there's intentionality with a T, which is the kind of intentionality I'm talking about, which is aboutness, as, as Jens said and as I said earlier. Um, then there's intentionality with an S, which is a really technical philosophical notion that I'm not going to go into, which has to do with um, um, language and whether or not you can substitute terms uh, without, uh, anyway, with, uh, substitute terms preserving truth. Um, I'm not going to go into that. And we're having a spectral shape, etc. Then there's uh, intentionality with a D, which is a pun because you don't spell it with a D, but it comes from the word intend, which is more the goal-directed notion of intentionality being 
intending to do something and having some goal in mind. The connection is that having a goal in mind is a kind of uh, intentionality with a T, but not all cases of intentionality with a T are goal-directed. So words exhibit intentionality in that words are about things, um, but they don't have any goals in mind. Um, people might have goals in mind in using the words, but that's a different matter. Um, so that's the relation. Intentionality with a D, intending an, a goal. Or intending to perform an action is a special case of intentionality with a T. Yeah, people who haven't done philosophy tend to use intentionality with a D as yeah. the default, right? And yeah. they're trying to understand what you're saying, and they misunderstand it totally, and they continue to think that. Way. So those who have not done philosophy will take with you. <laughs> right, so the, the Begain approach to this uh, emphasis on aboutness directed to the other um, that I'm going to be assuming here uh, sees that there, uh, finds it useful to understand intentionality as being, as having two components, at least usually. And um, it's not just the object that's intended toward, um, so you have maybe a mental state and it's relating to some object, perhaps external. Um, it's not just that you know, uh, it's not just the object that is being related to that um, is, that constitutes the, that plays a major role in the intentional explanation. That's sort of roughly the reference of the, of the intentional state we're talking about. But famously, Frege said, there's also the mode of presentation of that referent. There's the way that the object is being presented in whatever experience, say. Um, the way that's being thought about. So you have the same planet, Venus, can be thought, can be referred to, um, but it can be referred to in two different ways, as the morning star or as the evening star. And um, so I'm going to use the term, well, Frege used the term sense, but I'm going to use the term content as a general way to capture this aspect of significance, aspect of intentionality that is more than just the reference more than just the thing that's being related to, the way the thing is being related to, the way it's being presented. Right, so if you have this notion of content, this way that the world is being presented to a subject, <clears throat> you actually, usually for a, any subject, have a range of, in, of intentional states um, or contentful states that it can be in. And uh, in general, the members of this range will not be independent of each other, but rather they come in sets that it's because I can, um, it's often the case that uh, if I have an ability to, uh, for instance, have a set of thoughts about Jens, then because of that, I, and because I have a, the ability to have thoughts about um, being happy, being sad, being awake, being asleep, I now, because of those, uh, say, four or five different abilities, there's now many thoughts that I can have um, uh, by combining these abilities together. So given that, when, when you acquire a new concept, say, or a new, let, let's use concepts as an example, when you acquire a new concept, uh, you don't just acquire the ability to have one new thought, you acquire ability to have a range of thoughts. So if you look at it from the other direction, suppose you have a notion of the, whole, the range of thoughts that it, or, or 
contentful states of the subject can be in, you can look for patterns and look for the sets of contentful states that uh, the subject can be in that come together, that are related to each other, that, that you can't, if you have one, you can't, you can't not have the ability to have the other. Um, that will tell you what the constituents of the subject's contents are. If they were all completely independent of each other, then there wouldn't be any constituents. Or wouldn't, you wouldn't need to postulate any constituents. to help. It wouldn't gain you anything to postulate any constituents. But if you can break down that set into as being the outcome of joining together of different abilities, recombining different abilities, then um, you have the notion of constituents of content. <clears throat> So we just say that contents are composed of their constituents, if any. I mean, they might be only have one constituent themselves in the default degenerate case. case but, but I'm going to assume this possession principle, which is pretty standard. People assume this when they are developing a theory of content. Uh, a subject can only be in states with a given content if she possesses the constituents of that content. So we talk about possessing a content constituent. And all we mean is that if you possess a content constituent, it means you're capable of being in states with that constituent. You're capable of being in contentful states that have that constituent, of course, providing that you possess the other constituents of that content. <coughs> uh, just for, 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 if there's anybody in the audience who knows about non-conceptual content and conceptual content, you might be surprised that I, I hold on to this principle because a lot of people who are interested in non-conceptual content deny this. They say, well, no, that's the whole point of non-conceptual content is that you re reject this. You can be in states of the given content without possessing the concepts that compose that content. And they diffuse that to define non-conceptual content. So I'm breaking with, I think that's a misunderstanding. I think these people we think that really misunderstand what they're doing. They think they're confused. Um, so I actually hold on to the possession principle, um, and uh, yeah, and yet still think that non-conceptual content makes sense. So I don't try to explain non-conceptual content in the, non the, the usual way. Okay. So thus, the set of content constituents the subject possesses captures or determines the set of contents that the subject can can entertain or be in contentful states that can be in. All right, so what are concepts then? Well, they're the most familiar kind of content constituent. Concepts, I think, I, I mean, this isn't something I've studied or want to, to prove or have an argument for. I think it's a historical fact that, that concepts initially got their reference by being the content constituents. Well, okay, hold on. When I say contents got their, I mean the concept of concept got its reference. It picked out the set of content constituents that it, picks out, because initially people meant by a concept the content constituents that are typically expressed by normal everyday language, right? So um, I can express, I can say, for instance, um, Jens believes that today is Monday. So I use a, a sentence of English there, today is Monday, and by using that construction, Jens believes that, I'm basically indicating to you that <clears throat> the content of Jens's mental state, his belief in particular, 
is the same as the content of, of this English sentence. So English sentences also have content. They're not mental content, but they have linguistic content. And I'm making the claim by using that sentence that uh, Jens's belief has the very same content as the content of this uh, English sentence. So if that, given that natural way of, that we've developed of specifying each other's mental states, Assuming that that means of specifying each other's mental states works, it's going to follow that Jens's belief content that I specified has to be a linguistically shaped belief content. Because I used language, I said it's his, in his mind it is the very same content as the content of the sentence. So it's got to be linguistically structured uh, mental content. So because of that, uh, concepts, the kinds of content that concepts have, um, have particular characteristics. I've been over them before. I'll just, uh, in the overview slide, I'll just repeat them here. They're articulable, um, recombinable, rational, and deployable. So let me just go over these four constraints on what, you know, what, what makes a conceptual content constituent a conceptual content constituent. What makes the concept? Well, by articulable, I just mean concepts are expressible in language. That is, for any conceptual content, there exists some natural language expression that has, or you might say expresses, that very content. So it's not enough for it to just refer to the same thing that the concept refers to, right? That's, that's reference. We're talking about the, the dual of reference, sense, content. So it's not just that for any conceptual content there exists some language that refers to the same thing as the content that the, the conceptual constituent does. What, what about children who have not um, acquired much language? They don't have conceptual concepts? That's, well, it, that's a good question. And I think it's one of the reasons why non-conceptual content will be so useful, is to explain how you can move from being um, a non-language user to being a language user. So maybe at first, children um, don't use language in the sense that um, they have, there's this model of language use and understanding that requires a subject to have a mental content, a mental content that's, <clears throat> that's identical to the linguistic content that they're either producing or understanding. Um, and yet you can reject that. You can say that maybe there's a time where, uh, say children maybe, uh, they do the right thing when you say something to them, but that doesn't mean that they actually had a mental content that was equivalent to the linguistic yeah. content. Matter of fact, I might even sometimes I tend to go as far as Jens and say, we never, ever have the same content in our heads as the content of the linguistic. So, the, so there's linguistic content and mental content, and they really never, never meet. Okay. I so, hold almost the opposite. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right, so I misunderstood. Yeah, all right, so, <laughs> so what I just said, except the reference to Jens, take that out. So, so some people believe that, and, and I'm tempted to go this way, that, that actually mental content, linguistic content never overlap, and that the, the sen a sentence of English has its content and meaning, but I never have a thought that has that content. Um, for instance, uh, this, this allows you to solve all kinds of problems about, for instance, externalism. Some people here might have heard of... Uh, the Elm and the Expert, uh, for instance, you might have heard that there's this problem about um, uh, <clears throat> the meanings of our words not being determined by the states of our heads, um, and uh, for philosophical reasons. 
Uh, and I, I can't explain that problem. But for those of you who do understand that problem, if you do allow this gap between mental content and linguistic content, you can say, yes, what I say, the content is not determined by me, it's determined by my society and my environment. But that doesn't mean that what I think is determined by my society and my environment. It might be that my mental contents are internally determined. And to be a sophisticated user of linguistic content, you don't have to have, uh, or a competent user of linguistic content, you don't have to have those linguistic contents as the contents of your own mental states. But that's, that's, a, that's really not something I'm going to be arguing today. That's just for, for the one or two of you in the audience who know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Uh, anyway, let me, if it's okay for me to move on now. All right, so um, this is just the articulability requirement on concepts. It follows directly from the linguistic nature of concepts that I mentioned before that this will be true. If concepts are just as constituents that we were able to express in language, then it follows that all concepts are expressible in language. That's circular. Yeah, it's, it's circular, yeah. It's not. It's not harmfully circular, though. It's just. It's just reminding you. One is just expressible. In, in line three, it has become nature. I mean, you see what? In the first place, you say concepts are expressible, and but but it's, they are almost equal in, in line three here. Yeah. Line three. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Um, I think. So, so line one is just a projection, and and then it becomes a, it's nature. Isn't that uh, more? Um, yeah, maybe so. I'm not. I guess there's there could be a problem here, but I, I don't I don't think it's really a problem. Um, um, it's like saying. Um, uh, let me think of an analogy. Um, uh, let's define uh, things within my light cone to be things, the, area, the space within my light cone to be places you could get to from this point of space-time by traveling the speed of light or less, okay? Um, well, then it's going to follow that everything in my light cone can be got to by traveling the speed of light or less. Uh, it's Concepts are just the constituents that you can express in language. I mean, that... They, we, we, we set out the set of conceptual constituents by saying, well, they're the ones that we can refer to, or, you know, express in language. Um, then it's going to be true that every concept meets that condition as a starting point. I think we can then allow for progress to occur and say, well, we took that as our initial set of what concepts are, but in order for them to do the kind of work we want to do, we have to change them maybe... We add another, maybe make it smaller than that set. Maybe some things that we express with language are not concepts, so we'll throw them out. Or maybe some things can't be expressed by, by language, but we'll, we'll include them. But I haven't yet seen that happen. So th think about fish. Initially, we started out thinking, well, fish, you know, it's those animals that live in the sea. But then we decided that whales aren't fish. So even though we started with the idea that fish or any of the animals that live in the sea that kind of had fins and, you know, swam around, we now reject that, and we, we modified our the extension of fish to not include whales, even though we originally thought they were. That could happen with concepts. It could be that through development of our theory of concepts, we eventually throw out some of the, con some of the constituents that are expressible with language. We say, no, that's not a concept. 
or we might include some things that are concepts that aren't expressible in language. But I haven't yet seen a reason to do that. Unlike with whales and dolphins, we have a good reason to do that. Okay, so I, I'm allowing it to, I'm not, I'm not making it definitional like this. This is necessarily true of concepts. I'm just kind of saying that's where we are now. That's what people mean by concept now. All right? So. And we'll see that there's a relation between articulability. So these constraints are not independent of each other. You'll see that there are relations between them. And it's not just a kind of uh, portmanteau arbitrary collection of criteria. They're actually related. And we'll see that there's a relation between the articulability criterion and the rational uh, criterion. I'll get to that when I get to condition three, criterion three. Okay, so the second criterion was that these constituents be recombinable. Well, recombinable isn't enough. All constituents are, I think, by definition, recombinable. What I mean here is arbitrarily recombinable, generally, in a special technical sense of the word general, generally recombinable. So con that is, concepts respect the generality constraint. This is from Gareth Evans, 1982. If a subject can be credited with, and I put in conceptual in brackets there, because that's what Evans was talking about. Um, but anyway, I, I added that in. If a subject can be credited with a conceptual thought that A is F, like uh, the ball is red, okay, A is the ball and F is, is red, then he must have the conceptual resources for entertaining the thought that A is G, like the ball is blue, for every property of being G of which he has a conception. So if the, if the subject has the concept is blue and the subject's capable of thinking the ball is red, the subject must be capable of thinking the ball is blue. That's assuming those are all conceptual contents. If those are conceptual, if the subject has the conceptual thought the ball is blue and the subject, sorry, if the subject is capable of having the conceptual thought the ball is blue and the subject thinks that, um, sorry, one more time. If the subject is capable of, if, if it's capable of thinking is blue of things and it can think the thought the ball is red, then it must be capable of thinking the ball is blue. Right? It just means that these conceptual constituents arbitrarily combine in, within limits, but uh, within limits that are only constrained by semantic, making semantic sense. I'm not, I'm not saying a subject has to be able to, I can think um, three is prime, the building is red, therefore three is red. I don't have to be able to have that thought, three is red. Uh, I know what it is for three is red to be true, or the building is prime, right? I don't have to be able to know what those are. Because those are, um, that's going too far. Evans himself says, no, this requirement only holds within some semantic categories. So if I can think three is prime, then I should be able to um, be able to have the thought um, uh, even four is prime. Even though it's false, even though it's a false thought, I should like know what it would have to be for that to be true. Um, uh, there's a problem maybe there, but uh, anyway, so th this is uh, a strong constraint on concepts, and um, there's a tr tradition, at least one tradition in philosophy uh, and the theory of content takes this as being a very central aspect of concepts. And I think this also derives from, or is related to, at the very least, the linguistic nature of concepts, the fact that concepts were initially intended to be the constituents that we could express with language um, because thought has, uh, sorry, language has this property. Um, you know, if you're capable of understanding the sentence, the ball is 
red and you're capable of understanding sentences that use the predicate is blue, then you will therefore be able capable of understanding the sentence the ball is blue. Um, there isn't anybody who can say, well, yeah, I understand that the ball is red, I understand the book is blue, but what do you mean, what would that mean for a ball to be blue? You, know, you don't encounter people who have that, um, who have that problem. Um, if they did have that problem, we would consider it to be an impugn, it would impugn their, their rationality or their mentality in some way. It's kind of our notion of mentality, uh, conceptual mentality at least, packs with it that, that ability to reuse a linguistic predicate arbitrarily within that within its proper semantic category. Isn't program collisions point specifically that the systematicity and productivity of language are parasitic on the systematicity and productivity of concepts? Um, so rather than deriving from it feels weird to me to say that it derives from the linguistic nature of concepts. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of talking historically rather yeah. than causally yeah. or yeah. explanatorily. I'm just saying that yeah. because language ha now it might turn out that the reason why language is systematic is because thinkers are systematic. That's true, but because Fodor and Politian started their interest, in the, or orthodox cognitive science, their interest in mental states is the mental states that you could express with language. It shouldn't be any surprise that the mental states that could be expressed by language also have this property that language has. So. But, but if you're more of a convinced language fan like I am, you go with the Bloxian one, which is the opposite of the linguists. Which is the opposite? The opposite. The concepts come from language, not the language doesn't come from concepts. Right. So the Vygotskian line is that children have so-called pseudo-concepts, as you put it, and these are just labels they're using, and they're gradually filled with more content so it all comes from becoming more competent in language. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm open to that picture and, too. And, okay, and we would claim this not only ontogenetically, but phylogenetically. Yeah, good. Which would be the opposite of the older tradition variant that you just Right. So you can see a few controversy here in Dummett also made a Wittgenstein even made a big point about this and yeah. just he criticized the view that Fodor takes, of course it was before Fodor, that view as being the Augustinian view of language, that you have a concept first and you just like try to attach that to some word that you encounter. And so we've got this innate language of thought, uh, so we have the concept dog, and now we just hear a word and hear a word being used, dog, and we think, well, hmm, which which concept is that word expressing? Is it the concept cat? No. Is it the concept? Oh, it's the concept dog. Okay. And then you just learn to associate this pre-existing concept with that word. Um, so Wittgenstein rejected that. He thinks it for philosophical reasons, and um, other people reject it for empirical reasons too. Um, sorry. Oh, awesome. This, this was, would also be applicable to. Uh, other groups of speakers uh, with the uh, disabled community uh, thinking about uh, limitation breakdowns as a consequence uh, we have some debate business about language disorders that they need to so there are a number of groups which, which uh, you can think of when you uh, discuss this question that's a good you point have a, for instance uh, Stanford thinking in Islamic terms of possibly different groups. And I mean, if you start thinking about how many people are uh, within these groups uh, and uh, what these are 
I uh, the way I understand that point, uh, and it's a good one, is yeah, it's something that I've never really thought about, at least not explicitly before. Uh, it looks like another advantage, another problem for conceptual. Well, this is not. Uh, this is well known. That one problem for the theory of concepts is that um, there's this problem of uh, trying to. Um, it's the the idea that concepts have to be publicly shared, and you get into problems in the theory of concepts by insisting on that that we all have the same concept of dog, okay? And if we if you for, on the on the one hand you want it to be true for various reasons in the theory of content and theory of concepts, and on the other hand um, you don't want it, you seem it, it can't be true given that we all have our own idiosyncratic ways of using the word dog and thinking about dogs. So how do you resolve this? Well, theory of concepts has it fractures or has different ways of solving that problem. It might be that non-conceptual content could help you in that um, you could have uh, somehow allow concepts having to be publicly shared and in, in maybe in terms of linguistic content, but the mental content we have might all be with our own different shades of meaning and therefore not be, they might be perspective dependent and not fully recombinable in all the ways that a concept has to be. So maybe letting um, the bonds between language and thought be loosened a little bit, uh, that uh, allowing the constituents of thought not be c concept or language-like, maybe that will allow you to solve some of these problems about different variations within a group or between groups. Yeah, time. Yeah. Okay. So is it uh, is time up or how much? No, I, I take ten more minutes, but I think we should, not least me, we should all stop interrupting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. I'm glad that they're. That there are questions, though, because you're yeah. children paying attention. But um, yeah, it would help if I could not have any more questions until I get through the slides. I'm, I'm almost. I think I've just mm, I've got about I think six more slides. I'm not sure. Um, all right. So the third constraint is the rationality constraint. Uh, concepts occupy, or maybe even you could say, constitute what McDonald's called the space of reasons. That is um, concepts. Uh, and that is, in applying a concept, for instance, in judging something to be the case, for example, a thinker incurs a responsibility to justify that application. So McDowell says, conceptual capacities belong to a network of capacities for active thought, which takes place under a standing obligation to reflect about the credentials of the putatively rational languages that govern it. So you're, there are ways that you should use, there are norms here, there are ways that a concept should be used and should not be used. Um, and a thinker has a staying obligation to reflect on whether or not the concept is being used appropriately. And if the thinker has evidence to suggest that it's not being used appropriately, they should revise um, their um, usage. So in a sense, well, you could say concepts are employed for a reason. And that's going to be related to the the next constraint, which is the deployability constraint. Um, and this rational responsibility implies that one should revise a belief or a judgment or an application of a concept in the light of evidence to the contrary. Contradictions are not to be allowed to coexist. So your understanding obligation to be rational and for your conceptual usage to obey the norms of rationality. 
concepts also provide justifications for the uses of other concepts. So concept use has to be justified, but also concepts themselves can be justifications, can provide justifications for other conceptual use. So why did you uh, give him the book? Well, because I believed he wanted the book. He asked for the book. I want to make him happy. You know, th those kinds of justifications you give for your actions, your, or for a conceptual intention, say, in intentionality with a D here, uh, for that intention, uh, or that judgment that you should do that, um, can be, the justification can itself be a belief that you have, a conceptual belief that you have. Um, so concepts consume and produce justifications. Um, and so now we see the connection to articulability and connection between rationality and articulability. McDowell also says, in the reflective tradition we belong to, there's a time-honored connection between reason and discourse. So that's constraint one and three, three and one. We can trace it back at least as far as Plato. If we try to translate reason and discourse into Plato's Greek, we can find only one word, logos, for both. Reasons that the subject can give insofar as they are articulable, must be within the space of concepts. So concepts have to be articulable, not just because of some historical accident of that's how we got you know, to this, that's the set of con content constituents we're most interested in because we're the ones we could specify. Maybe that's how we got into the picture, but it turns out that there's something special about being articulable and being a reason. Because in our tradition, or at least McDowell claims, Having a reason is cannot be separated from giving a reason. So it, it has to be that you can actually articulate and give kind of publicly um, some uh, reason, and that that's going to require articulation. Um, yeah, well, having a reason, justifying in terms of giving a reason is going to be strongly connected to articulation. Okay, and finally, deployability. Concept, conceptual content constituents are under the endogenous control of the agent or the subject um, with that has the concept. What I mean by that, or well, I'm getting, uh, Prince has put it that way, that term endogenous control. Um, but what, what uh, I mean by that is concept use is not purely reactive. It's not a passive, purely passive um, activity or event. Um, but rather, concept use involves an exercise of the subject's spontaneity, um, another term from McDowell. So this is, again, a very McDowellian view of concepts. They have to be articulated because they have to be reason-giving because um, they are exercises of the subject's spontaneity, their freedom. That's where the notion of responsibility uh, comes in. Um, so that's a neo-Kantian idea. This is, this is going to be traced back to Kant, um, at least. So, to remind you of the connection to um, the previous constraint, they're applied for a reason because they're exercises of the subject's spontaneity. They aren't just something that um, my stimulus response just happened to apply this concept because the world hit me in a particular way, but rather they're a result of my, they're exercise of my agenthood, my subjecthood, my reasons. Okay, so I don't know why that slide's blank, but... Um, just make sure that that gives the next slide, okay. So, uh, just one quick point here that I'm not going to really defend, although I mentioned it in the overview slide. It can be argued that concepts are necessary and or sufficient for the objective world to be presented to a subject as the objective world.
for instance, to be able to think of an object as something that can exist unperceived independently of oneself, a subject must be able to think of that object in arbitrarily recombinable ways. For example, a subject that thinks of an apple as an object X, an objective object X, must know what it would be for X is red to be true, even if the subject currently believes X is not in view. So you have to be able to recombine, know what it is for, um, even something that you can't see, know what it would be for that thing to be red to be true. That thing is red to be true. Okay. Concepts allow us to explain a wide range of cognitive behavior. To give just two examples, first of all, there are instrumental propositional attitude explanations. So, as an example, you can say, uh, Lyra reached to the right because she wanted to get a glass and she believed that there was a glass on the right. And that rationalizes her action in terms of her beliefs and desires. Um, but that kind of explanation only works if the concept X that one's being used in uh, this explanation, for instance, in the phrase, wanted to get an X, is the same as the concept X in believe that there was an X on the right. So mere co-reference isn't sufficient. You have to actually have a notion of content, a notion of content constituent. It has to be thought about in the same way by the subject in order for that to be an explanatory, um, in order for that to be an explanation of the behavior. Another example, uh, just very quickly, explanations of inference. Mary inferred that Steve is a man because she heard someone say Steve is a bachelor. Um, you can only understand Mary's inference there if you have the notion of somehow the concept of bachelor um, implying that a thing that's a bachelor is a man. Um, so there's the notion of conceptual truths, maybe uh, analytic truths, truths uh, that are true solely by virtue of their, their meaning or conceptual structure. Um, but really this is, doesn't do justice to the power of conceptual explanation. It's just it's throughout cognitive science, content-based explanations use, typically use uh, concepts and uh, most of the explanations that are provided can only be, whatever work they get done is because they're using concepts. Um, and um, that's a testament to the power of conceptual explanation. But there are limits. So this is just a repeat of the slide you saw before. So rather than just go over them again into Quickly, I'll just go into them in detail, but um, don't have time to discuss all of them. Uh, I probably only have like two minutes left now. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, if we want to have, if we want to have any discussion, I should stop now, I suppose. But I'm just now getting to the problems of conceptual explanation. I could start with that on Wednesday, or, or yeah, maybe if we, if we want something, we can have, have a lot of discussion. How how about just instead of going, I I have like. I've got like five of these prepared, but maybe if I just do one of them, so we have a feel for what one of the problems with conceptual explanation is, and then we can do the other ones later. So just one, I think it'll be just this one slide. So for example, the content of our perceptual experience seems to outstrip our perceptual, con our perceptual concepts. So it seems to be the case that there's a richness and fineness of grain to our perceptual experience that cannot, that we do not possess the concepts to adequately express. It's a familiar problem. I mean, that's why art is non-trivial. Um, that's why um, 
this apparent uh, ineffability has moved so many people, um, and it's been the source of uh, a, 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 that kind of limitation. It's been maybe an impetus for a lot of creativity. Um, so, for example, it's not a misprint. It should be done outstrip our perceptual concepts, not Oh, yeah, there, there are okay. concepts that are not perceptual. For instance, yeah. the concept of the number pi is oh, not yeah, a perceptual concept. But red, the concept red, as in the thought, the ball is red, um, that's a perceptual concept. But, um, but we can experience, seems to plausible to say, uh, that we can experience many more shades of color than we have color terms for, certainly. And um, some somebody like Peacock would go further and say, it's not just color terms, it's actually, we don't even have color concepts for all the ways in which we can experience color. So that's just the first of the, the five different, um, uh, or six different problems with concepts um, that I'm gonna go over. So let me just, uh, I'll skip, I'll, you're gonna get these later, but um, let me just, uh, You'll get them on Wednesday, but let me just jump to the last slide and say, right, so here's the end of part one, the need for an alternative. So after I go over these other problems of conceptual explanation, I'm going to conclude, oh, I'm going to, this is relating to Jens's point. Some might take these limitations of the conceptual approach as a basis for intentional eliminativism of some kind. Either we should get rid of intentional or content-based explanations altogether, or we could um, maybe just get rid of, rid of uh, conceptual content-based explanations. But I think the plausibility of um, getting rid of uh, content-based explanations altogether would be, the plausibility would be removed or reduced if one could instead find an alternative form of content-based explanation. So if we could still explain each other's explain behavior and cognition in terms of content, but maybe allow for um, content that doesn't necessarily have to meet these conceptuality criteria, then maybe we could avoid these problems and save content-based explanation. Um, now this could replace conceptual explanation or merely augment it. So maybe there are some cases where conceptual explanation gets it right. Um, just because there are those problems with it doesn't mean that it doesn't work under some conditions. So maybe you'd have a, 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 a cognitive science that uses conceptual explanation, uses both conceptual content and non-conceptual content. That's what some, somebody like Chris Peacock, for instance, that I've mentioned in this talk, um, he takes that view. Um, or you might actually say, no, there isn't, there are really, you're, you could be a conceptual eliminativist. You could say there are no concepts, but not be a content eliminativist. You could say, yes, there's mental content, but it just doesn't have any conceptual structure as nothing meets those four criteria. Um, I'm not sure. There are some conceptual interests like uh, recently uh, uh, Edward Mashery has argued for getting rid of concepts in cognitive science, but I'm not sure whether he thinks we should still have content-based explanation, just not conceptual content-based explanation. I'm not sure about that, about his particular position. But anyway, so I'll be looking at this alternative and the rest of the criticisms of the conceptual approach in part two. So that's it.